This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we talk about affirmative action in higher education in the United States. The Supreme Court will soon rule on the latest case over race-based college admissions, which many fear will end affirmative action as we know it. Private elite colleges are the places that affirmative action is even on the table. And so in those kinds of places, admissions is a very complex process where they're looking kind of holistically at a whole range of things, right? So these colleges are increasingly test optional, but obviously your grades in high school, your grade point average, what classes are you taking? Did you take, what is offered at your high school? Did you take the most rigorous courses or you know, did you specialize in a certain area? They're looking at what extracurricular activities did you do? My guest is Natasha Wariku, a professor of sociology at Tufts University. Her new book is Is Affirmative Action Fair, which was published by Polity Press. Natasha Wariku, welcome to Fresh Ed. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So in November of 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments about this case called Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College. A decision I think is supposed to be coming out sometime later this year. Can you just tell me what this case is about? Sure. This is a case, you know, I'll tell you the big picture is that its goal is to end race conscious admissions in higher education. That is affirmative action. But I'll give you a little bit of the background on the case for listeners who aren't familiar. So affirmative action has been contested in court in the United States since the 1970s. Cases have reached the U.S. Supreme Court four times prior to this case. And in each decision, the court has affirmed the right for uh, colleges to consider race kind of whole holistically, that is, in conjunction with a variety of factors, kind of holistic sense, but has said, the court has also said you can't do it in a kind of mechanistic way. You can't have quotas. So this is very different from other countries, say like India or South Africa, where quotas are built into the constitution, right? You must have quotas. So this is different. And so this organization, Students for Fair Admissions, is an organization led by a man named Edward Blum. He brought a case that landed in the U.S. Supreme Court that was attacking affirmative action that was decided in 2015 and 2016. And he lost those cases. The court, again, affirmed college's right to affirmative action, consider race and admissions. And so this time, Blum thought, well, you know, we're noticing that Asian Americans are doing quite well academically in the United States. And so I'm going to use Asian American plaintiffs uh, in this case and say that these colleges are discriminating against Asian Americans in their practice. And the way that we're going to resolve that is by ending race conscious admissions. Now, this was a little bit of a bait and switch, because if there is any discrimination towards Asian Americans, it's hard to understand why the remedy would be ending the consideration of race for other racial groups, right? For Black, Latinx, and Native Americans. But this is the argument. And so it was kind of a surprise when the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear this case. And of course, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court has changed pretty dramatically in the last few years with three Trump appointees. It's it's a much more conservative court. And so uh, the court heard arguments in this trial in October, and we're waiting for a decision which should come out in May or June. And we'll have to see what they say. Is there an expectation among sort of court observers as to where this case is headed? So 
in general, the sort of word on the street is that this is going to quote unquote end affirmative action. I think that the kind of proof is in the pudding, right? So what exactly that looks like, I don't think we know. You know, in the trial, there was this moment where the plaintiffs were asked, well, what about, you know, is a person allowed to talk about, you know, experiences with racial discrimination and how that affected their life? And the lawyer for Students for Fair Admissions actually said, yeah, you can talk about that. You can t even talk about how, you know, if you are from an immigrant family, how that cultural heritage has shaped your life. That's okay. And so, you know, this suggests that it's not that colleges are going to have to, quote unquote, not see race and not know. So what exactly that looks like that, you know, you're allowed to talk about your racial background, but you can't have, you can't do it in a way that's, you know, you can't say maybe have a box to kind of check off, right? And so what exactly that looks like, we're going to have to wait and see. You know, I think Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson had this very powerful moment when she said to the lawyer, so you're telling me that a white applicant to, uh, this was in the uh, University of North Carolina case. There are two cases. It's a little complicated, but there are two universities basically that the organization is suing. And she said, you're telling me that you, that a white applicant could say, you know, my family has gone to this university for generations and I want to honor that legacy by going to this university. Because of course, uh, these colleges are allowed to take into consideration whether your parent has gone to this university and your ties to the university. And and you're saying that's okay, but for a person who is also, you know, been in North Carolina for generations, who is black, cannot say, well, my family has been in this state for generations. My ancestors were slaves on this land. Um, they were not allowed because this university, of course, did not allow African Americans until, you know, much until sometime in the last century. And I would like to honor their legacy of, you know, by going to this university that the former will be allowed, but not the latter. You know, he didn't come out and say, yes, yes, but the answer was yes. And so, you know, there is this very odd very thin line that we'll have to see like what exactly that looks like. What is the court going to allow? Um, what is it not going to allow? So I think that's, you know, the kind of legal decision that's going to come about that I don't think we know exactly what that will look like. But I do think that whatever that, however they sort of land, it's going to have, it's ha it's already having a chilling effect where so many colleges are like, we're not, and we've seen this, and this is even prior to this case where, you know, colleges that don't have the resources that say a Harvard has to fight a legal battle are kind of backing away from affirmative action and because they don't want, they're worried about being sued and they don't have the resources to fight a, a suit in court. I guess this stepping back from this is actually kind of an interesting thing. And this is kind of doing your book where you, you start really looking at what affirmative action is. And one of the first questions that comes to mind is about how do colleges and universities in the United States even go about deciding who to accept, right? I mean, it, it's sort of that big historical question almost in a way. Yeah. I think the important thing to keep in mind, and I always like to remind people of, is that the vast majority of colleges in the United States are not practicing affirmative action because the majority of even four-year colleges are accepting all or almost all of the applicants to them. They are op either open admissions or accepting over half, you know, 80, 90% of applicants. And so when you're in that kind of situation, you're really looking at applicants and do we think this person can be successful here? But it's only in colleges that have more applicants who they think can be successful on their college campus 
than they have space for. And so, you know, we're talking about the UNCs, the Harvards, these, you know, the kind of flagship state schools, the private elite colleges are the places that, you know, affirmative action is even on the table. And so in those kinds of places, admissions is a very complex process where they're looking kind of holistically at a whole range of things, right? So, you know, and decreasingly, you know, these cultures are increasingly test optional, but in the past, looking at either your ACT or SAT score, and now that's optional. Obviously, your grades in high school, your grade point average, what classes are you taking? Did you take, you know, what, you know, what is offered at your high school? Did you take the most rigorous courses or, you know, did you specialize in a certain area? They're looking at what extracurricular activities did you do? And within those, did you show some leader? Like, were you the cap, not just on the baseball team, but the captain or the all-star, what have you? They're looking at letters of recommendation from your teachers. They're looking at your essay and how you sort of, you know, does your essay and what you talk about in that kind of resonate with the courses that you've taken or the extracurricular activities that you do. And they sort of look at this all holistically. And there are all these other little factors that play a role, like what's your intended subject that you want to study. They are looking for diversity, not just of race, but also of geography. They want someone from every state in the country. That's like a thing. They are considering, you know, do you have ties to the university? Do you have a sibling or a parent who went to this university? So all of these things are looked in a holistic way. I mean, Harvard is kind of unique because it is so well-resourced. It's sort of, you know, has, they talk in the trial about how they have 40 people in these meetings where someone has read the application and then they put it up on the slide and they, they do a vote right? For every single applicant. And so it's a very labor intensive process, but this is the sort of holistic view that process that these very elite colleges are using. That process, it's like a little black box, isn't it? Because like the 40 people sitting in a room, sifting through all of these different factors. And I don't imagine this is public information, how they, you know, exactly the methodology they use to come to the decision is not public, is it? It's not, except because of this trial, a lot of the data for Harvard in particular has become public in a way that wasn't in the past. So we know more than we did before. And again, Harvard in some ways is unique, but in other ways is not so unique in terms of that holistic look in at very selective colleges. And one thing you see, you know, I've come to realize in thinking about these questions is that these colleges, it's not that uh, someone once called them uh, highly rejective colleges, right? They're in the best business of rejecting. I mean, they're accepting one in 20, like one in 25, like the number keeps rising of the applicants. And so when that happens is like, okay, a first cut will kind of eliminate all the people who aren't like stellar, stellar, stellar applicants, right? And then within that, something has to still, you still have like multiple applicants per spot. And then something has to push you it over the like, okay, of all these people, you get in, right? And sometimes that is a parent who went to the college. Sometimes that is the coach wants you for your team, right? I didn't mention that earlier, that coaches have um, a special role to play. Sometimes it's you are from a state where like you're the only person in that pool from Wyoming, right? So like that pushes you in the... And so there are all these things and without absent something like that, you're probably not going to get in because there are just too many people. There are too many amazing young people out there, and which is a good thing, right? Um, and they can't all go to Harvard. They don't need to go to Harvard. And so I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that we really need to stop thinking about college admissions as this like individual certification of worthiness that like these are the best of the best. You know, ultimately among all those amazing people, 
it's kind of random, you know, <laughs> like it's kind of a little bit of luck. Like, you know, maybe this year the, the oboist for the orchestra is graduating and you happen to be like the best oboe player in your, you got first chair. I guess there's only two oboes in an orchestra, but you know, you got, you were like the top oboist in the state or something. And like, it's your lucky day. And it doesn't mean that you're any better than that top clarinet player, right? And so in a sense, there has to be some level of selection bias, right? There has to be a sort of subjective opinion by this group of people making a decision over this class, even if it's not just about race, right? It can be about, they're all like, as you said, there's all these other factors that they're sort of weighing. What is the logic or the justification for affirmative action then in such a system as you've just explained, what are the proponents saying as to why affirmative action is needed? Before I answer that, I just want to go back to this idea of this being a kind of subjective process, because I just want to point out that any system of selection, there is some definition of merit that is like, there's no one perfect, like objective system, right? And so this is what this organization has decided they're going to use to select people for the goals that they have, right? So, you know, the U.S. system can seem very peculiar to people outside of the United States. And it is a peculiar system, right? Most other countries like Britain, like other places in the world are mostly using as like these standardized exams, right? National exams and get the highest score. You get to go to IIT, you know, in India, you get to go to, well, I know Oxford and Cambridge have an interview as well, but you, at least you get an interview, right? Based on your exams or your, but it's important to remember that those also are subjective, right? Someone has decided that this is the exam we're going to use. Someone has decided that this is the content that we think is important for studying at this university. That is what we think makes you worthy of this education at this kind of, at this university. So those are also subjective. And just because they are quantitative and they are numbers and there's no kind of individual judgment doesn't mean that they are objective any more than, you know, I think it's a little more obvious the way that the U.S. system is a little more, um, that there's judgment involved. But there's judgment in a different way, I think, in these other systems. So I just want to point that out, that systems of meritocracy are never, there's no like pure form of meritocracy. Meritocracy is always about what does this society or this organization value right now and how are they measuring it, right? And that determines who is seen as meritorious. So I just, I just want, I think it's important to point out. I think Thomas Piketty sort of says it's a way of justifying certain inequality in a system. Sure. And meritocracy has been used historically, right, to benefit those who are high status. So affirmative action, you know, so there are a few different justifications of affirmative action that I outline in the book, but I'll start with the one that has been upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. And that is that the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed that you can use affirmative action. And so race is like illegally a kind of what we call a suspect class in the United States, right? You have to be a little skeptical when people are using race because race has been used to discriminate, particularly towards African-Americans, right? And that is why we have the Civil Rights Act. That's why we have the 14th Amendment to protect African-Americans from racial discrimination. So you have to really show that you have a good reason to consider race in a way that you don't have to have a good reason. You don't have to be able to say in court why you are considering 
considering whether the parents went to this college. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to privilege people whose parents can afford to pay for your college. That's okay. You can discriminate towards working class people, but you cannot discriminate on the basis of race. Now, non-discrimination on the basis of race does not specify which races, right? So these laws designed to protect racial minorities have been used to say, hey, whites are being discriminated against and now Asian Americans, right? So I, I just want that, so there's a little bit of an irony there, but the court has said you can do that if there is a compelling state interest in doing so and you narrowly tailor it. So this is when you're considering a suspect class. So the court has said, well, um, having a diverse student body in which everyone benefits and that, you know, from kind of diverse perspectives in the classroom is allowed justification for affirmative action. So if you need to consider race and that's the only way you can have this racially diverse student body that then learns from each other in the classroom, in the dorm, that is a satisfactory reason. So this diversity rationale, right? And there's a lot of research that shows that that does happen, that when you have a more diverse campus, people have more positive racial attitudes. They even like their cognitive, their sense of leadership, cognitive capacity, like there are all these outcomes that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Even civic participation and into adulthood seems to be affected by diverse diversity on the college campus. So that's the kind of legally allowed reason. And because of that, that's the one that really has taken hold in the United States. And there's good reason for it. I think I think there are other reasons that get talked about less, but I think matter, right? So when affirmative action started in the 1960s, it was about redressing racial exclusion, right? And so it was about racial inequality and almost like a reparation, right? Meaning, you know, African-Americans in particular have been excluded from these colleges for generations, either, you know, by law, by some of the Southern colleges, like literally didn't allow it, or by, you know, how they were admitting students, right? You had to know Latin. How many African-Americans had access to, were studying at schools that had Latin? Not very many. And so, you know, maybe there was one or two or three over decades. And so reparations for past exclusion and racial inequality today, right? We There is a lot of data on how race plays a role aside from class in the United States. And that's another justification. And the last just reason that people talk about, and this has been kind of mentioned in court, is a diverse leadership right? That in order to create a pipeline towards a diverse leadership in society, we need affirmative action. And Sandra Day O'Connor, appointed by Ronald Reagan, a Republican president, talked about this, that, you know, we need leadership that is legitimate in the eyes of the people, right? If you have a completely white or no, you know, white and Asian American leadership, people will, particularly people who say who are black or Latinx or Native American, won't take it seriously. They'll be like, this is like, what is this? Like, this is clearly, I don't see anyone like me in the leadership and they won't take it seriously. And that is problematic for democracy. And didn't Barack Obama credit affirmative action for his own sort of success in a way? Yeah, he talks about affirmative action, that he thinks that that helped him in his higher education trajectory. Justice Sotomayor on the U.S. Supreme Court, also she calls herself a quote, you know, affirmative action baby. And so, you know, we can see in leadership the ways that it has benefited us in terms of who is in leadership and what leadership looks like in the United States. And there is actual research that is sociological research that is showing all of these benefits as being material, right? Like they, they do actually exist, like you said, they do create learning environments that are diverse, end up creating all these sort of positive outcomes, as you're sort of saying. 
Yeah, they do. You know, I'm a sociologist. And so in the book, I use my kind of sociological kind of analyses to say, well, what is the data on this? You know, because we can have like, we can pontificate and have our opinions, but you know, there's social science that looks at, well, okay, if we look, there's a study that's been around for a long time now that looked at graduates of these selective colleges and they tried to, you know, it's again, because it's holistic, it's hard to know how, who benefited from infection versus who didn't, but they try to estimate it by saying, okay, people whose SAT scores are on, are on the lower end of people in their college, likely who are black or Latinx, or I think they, this was a focus on African-Americans, they're likely to have benefited from affirmative action. Let's compare them to African-Americans who go to colleges where they're more in the middle of the SAT score. So maybe, you know, would have gotten in absent affirmative action as well. And they find that going to a higher status college creates all of these additional professionals. They're more likely to graduate because higher status colleges have higher graduation rates and they seem to be pulled up by that. There's also studies like in states that have banned affirmative action where you can see what happens over time with the ban. So, you know, California has not considered racing uh, the University of California system since 1998 because of the state referendum there. Nine states that have bans on affirmative action. There was a study of medical schools. There's a 5% decline in Black and Latinx doctors as a result of these bans in those states. You know, and there's research on medical care and how having the same race doctors seems to affect the kind of care people get. You know, and in the university, there's a big study of the University of California system kind of before and after the ban. And they find that, again, underrepresented minorities end up going to lower status colleges which seems to make them less likely to graduate. And then down the line, Latinos seem to have lower wage, 5% lower wages as a result. And so there is all of this data that we can look at and see, well, what does happen when you ban affirmative action in a state? And, you know, so I think that tells us, you know, on the flip side, what it probably does do on the positive way. Is there any sort of research that supports opponents of affirmative action? The, the people like Ed Blum, who is putting forward this case to the Supreme Court. And it sounds like he's been on a bit of a crusade doing it multiple times. Is there any evidence in the research literature that would support people against affirmative action and their sort of stance? I've looked at all of this data because sometimes you think there's got to be something there, right? And in a way, it really feels like there's no there there. Like when I look at the, the, the one intuitive thing that turns out to be wrong is this idea of mismatch, right? That, okay, well, if someone is going to a college where they're not as academically prepared for, aren't they going to be, aren't they going to flounder? right? And the evidence suggests that even if you are less academically prepared, you're still more likely to graduate than if you go to the lower status college. Again, it's because these higher status colleges have more resources, and that is probably what's driving their higher graduation rates, right? You probably have smaller classes, more student services to help you out if you're kind of struggling. So that turns out to be false. Now, they may have slightly lower graduation rates to the rest of their peers on that campus, but that's a different question, right? They're still better off in those colleges. So if we care about graduating underrepresented minority students, then actually, you know, you, you want to have more from direction, not less. And I think it's because opponents are assuming that it plays a bigger role than it does. Like if the consideration of race were so much that students really could not pass their classes at these higher studies colleges, then that wouldn't be the case, right? But I think it's because colleges have been cautious in who, in how much they are sort of 
giving a, a boost to underrepresented groups on campus. And in my mind, I also think these colleges need to do an even better job supporting those students once they are admitted. And I think they have gotten better to their credit. I think they've gotten better at that. You know, we see increasing numbers of centers for students of color or, you know, Africana centers or centers for first generation students who are the first in their family to go on to university. Um, and we know that black and Latinx students are more likely to be first generation than white and Asian American students. So colleges are trying to build these supports in. I think they can do more. And, you know, the more they do, the more they can consider race because they can feel confident that they can meet the needs, needs of those students. I think that the other argument that they have made that sometimes uh, I think people are like, oh, well, there seems to be something there is this question of Asian American, right? In this Harvard versus Students for Fair Admissions case, they actually have Asian American plaintiffs. And they say, well, Asian Americans who are admitted to Harvard have on average, higher SAT scores and higher grade point averages than all other racial groups, including whites, right? I will say before this case, I was like, mm, yeah, there's something weird about that. And, you know, I can see why you would give a boost to underrepresented minorities, but you should not be penalizing Asian Americans or on the flip side, giving whites a boost vis-a-vis -vis Asian Americans because whites have not experienced racial discrimination or we don't need to, there's no lack of diversity, lack of whites on these campuses. There's no justification for boosting whites over Asian Americans. So I felt like maybe there's something there. But actually, when the data came out from the Harvard trial, what you see is that it's not really what's going on. There are all these other things that seem to benefit whites that sort of put that, you know, remember I was talking about like you have all these people who are amazing and who gets flipped into the inbox, right? You know, whites are more likely to be a leg, you know, have a parent who went to Harvard. They're, you know, when we look at the representation across the country, where do all people of color live? We tend to live on the coasts, right? So if you're giving a boost to that person from Wyoming or Montana, most likely that person is going to be white. Intended major, they want to have a diversity, you know, they need students in the English department and the philosophy department. And who tends to say they want to study these underrepresented majors? It tends to be white applicants. People of color tend to say they want to make major in STEM. It's things like athletic recruiting. People who, so athletic recruiting is this, again, this peculiar thing in the U.S. where sports is really important. So if the coach, if you have kind of a baseline GPA and, and SAT score, if the coach, you know, really needs a pitcher for the baseball team this year, you're a star pitcher and he wants you, he tells the admissions office, look, this is my person and you're basically in, right? That tends to benefit whites because of who is excelling in sports. And so all of these other things that are perfectly legal, we may not agree with them. We may think like, well, why are they doing that? But they're not illegal. Those are the kinds of things that are benefiting whites above and beyond Asian Americans. And that's what's leading to this disparity. Does that fall on class lines then, in a way, where the ability to play a sport sometimes means you have to come from wealthier background? It's both class and race, I will say. So absolutely class. High school sports in the United States have a lot written about this by sociologists in terms of like, and I've learned this as a parent, which I never knew there was such a thing as quote unquote club sport, where it's not, you're just not playing for your varsity team in your high school now. You're playing for these private teams and there are tryouts. And, and so absolutely it's class, but it's also race. You know, I also I had a book that came out last year called Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. And this is a study of a suburban community 
community that is pretty high-income suburban community that has a large and growing Asian American population. And one of the things that I noticed is that parents tended to have just different emphasis for their children in terms of how to get ahead, right? Where Asian American parents put a little bit more stake in the academics, right? They all care about academics and they all understand that colleges want to see extracurriculars. But the Asian American parents, they were like, Academics come first. Some of those parents like telling their kids who are maybe on a varsity sports team, please, can you quit? You're not getting your homework done. Sometimes the kids listen, sometimes they don't. But it was clear, you know, take as many advanced classes as you can. And if you need to quit sports, you quit. Versus the white parents talked to, they, a lot of them use this word balance, right? They were like, you know, we told our kids only one advanced class per year because you have theater and, you know, when, when production comes around, you're going to be, you know, really swamped and I don't want you to get stressed. So don't take too many honors classes or, you know, you're going to be playing basketball and soccer and what's the spring sport? Tennis, you know, so really you get, ease up on the academics. Don't take too many advanced classes. Now, again, they all care about both of these things, but how, what do they focus on? And, and I think that is, and what's their sort of vision for how to help your kid get ahead. And I think there are cultural differences in those, what I call cultural repertoires in the book for how to help your kid get ahead that are different. So I think that is also playing a role aside from class. And so if the Supreme Court does come down pretty hard against affirmative action and sort of the system that currently exists in U.S. higher education selection kind of ends, particularly for those selective schools that you were saying. You know, what advice would you give a university admissions team if they really did want to try and create a diverse class year on year, but now being limited by this new Supreme Court ruling? What advice would you give? Like, how can we reimagine admissions and affirmative action? Well, I would hope colleges are thinking about this question already, and I think that they are, right, because they are anticipating a decision that's going to affect, you know, them just a few months later when they're starting to look at applications in the fall. I don't know exactly what colleges are doing, but I will say, in general, the lowest hanging fruit is like going SAT optional. And I think that they've already, you know, COVID sort of accelerated that. So a lot of colleges had already been doing that. Almost all selective colleges are doing that now because the pandemic kind of pushed that into kind of high gear. I think, you know, having a diversity essay where you're really trying to under asking people to tell us about, you know, how has diversity affected your own life trajectory? I think, but you know, beyond these kind of very specific things, I think we really, colleges really need to kind of go back to first principles and say, hang on a minute, what is our mission? What is our purpose? What are we trying to do as a university? And now how do we align how we admit students with what we're trying to do and what our mission is, you know? And so if our mission, and to me, and when you look at the mission statements of, of colleges in the United States, there's a lot of talk about contributing to society, about the kind of civic kind of role that they play, right? And this is very different from places, you know, other countries. And I've looked at some of this in Britain. You know, in Britain, I think it's kind of ironic that the elite colleges are public, right? They're fun, they're state funded, but they see themselves much more as kind of a city on a hill, right? We are a bastion of intellectual endeavor and that is our role, right? Research and being the kind of city on a hill. Whereas American universities historically have been much more socially embedded as one, as um, one sociologist calls it. We have the land grant universities, universities that were started in the 19th century that were all about learning about agriculture and engineering and very practical purposes. You know, we have the elite universities in the US are much more have 
professional schools like teacher education, like business schools, law schools, medical schools. And so I think that in the U.S. we have this civic mission and I think we need to come back to that. How do we select students that are going to further our civic mission? And when we do that, it becomes, to me, it becomes clear we need to think about of all the, you know, there's so many amazing young people. Like, who is going to, is more likely to further that civic mission? What does a class look like that is going to benefit our society? How do we enact that? And I think when we do that, to me, it becomes clear we have to consider race. But if we're not able to do that, we need to consider how does this person's biography, what does this person's biography tell us that can help us figure out, you know, are they more likely to be somehow contribute to society? And there's so many different ways we can contribute, right? And that's, there's not one thing, but that's sort of how I I think about this. And so to me, that means double down on financial aid. I think that will go a long way to helping increase racial diversity as well. It means, you know, rethinking, like, do we really want to be like doing as much athletic recruiting as we're doing? Because that's playing a big role. Do we want to be continue with our legacy admissions? How do we, you know, even the whole financial model, the financial model of these institutions is that we're going to have around half of our students paying more than the median household income in this country, right? By definition, they are assuming a upper, you know, income class. You know, how do we change that financial model? And that's hard. You know, I don't have good answers for like the money's got to come from somewhere. And so what is that really going to look like? I don't know. But there would be ways to still keep a racially diverse student body, even if you don't choose on race. I don't know. I mean, I'm not so optimistic. I think because when we look at these states, we see declines in the underrepresented minorities. And, you know, I mentioned the studies of medical school of University of California. And so, you know, there's studies of uh, in Michigan. It's not, you know, it doesn't look good. So I'm a little pessimistic, but I think colleges are going to do their best because I think most colleges are committed to racial diversity. I don't know. It doesn't, it's, it's not good. Yeah. If you've looked at the evidence and you know that there's pretty bad outcomes when you have a very homogenous white student body after having a diverse student body and knowing that if they get rid of affirmative action, then that's sort of a likely outcome. So, you know, fighting against that, trying to come up with creative ways around it is going to be up to the every institution, right? I mean, it's going to be sort of a free-for-all. Yeah, I also think as a society, we need to look beyond, we also need to be thinking beyond elite higher education. Because the reality is that the vast majority of people going to college are going to, starting out in two-year colleges, they're going to open access colleges, and the vast, an even higher proportion of Black, Latinx, Native American students are going to those kinds of institutions, right? So we see this bifurcation. Over the last few decades, our states have really divested from the state system, right? You know, the state colleges have been sort of are the places where that educate a large number of of students in general, but particularly underrepresented minority students. And so, you know, our community colleges, our state colleges, we need to reinvest in those. And I think that is another strategy that we need to think about as a society, right? How do we provide the resources? When we look at which colleges are promoting the most social mobility, it's those colleges because they educate so many more people than the Harvards of the world. And so, you know, I write a lot about elite higher education, but I always try to remind listeners and readers that this higher education in the United States is so much more than these elite colleges. Well, Natasha Waraku, thank you so much for joining Freshhead. Really a pleasure to talk today and congratulations on your book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Natasha Wariku is a professor of sociology at Tufts University. Her book is, Is Affirmative Action Fair? A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Freshhead are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed not fresh ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fati Octas, Obafemi Ungunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements, and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shockdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.